This is the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology, covering industry analysis, data, and market forecasting for quantum technology markets worldwide. Now, here's your host, Christopher Bishop. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Quantum Tech Pod. I'm delighted you're listening. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're sitting on the planet. My guest today is Matt Johnson, the CEO of QCWare. Matt leads QCWare's business and also serves on the QEDC governing board. Matt was a captain in the Air Force and on active duty for five years, and then subsequently worked in finance, becoming a managing director in private equity at Apollo Management. Worth noting that Matt swam the English Channel in 2003 and the annual 28.5-mile Manhattan Island race in 2004 and remains an avid but mediocre swimmer. That's his qualifier, by the way. (laughs) His company, QCWare, is a quantum and classical computing software and services company focused on ensuring enterprises are prepared for the emerging quantum computing disruption. The company's goal is to be the leader in developing practical algorithms that run on HPC hardware, both classical and quantum. QCWare's quantum computing software solves problems in combinatorial optimization and machine learning with efficiency unmatched by traditional HPC solutions. The company was founded in 2014 and is headquartered in Palo Alto, California, has about 50 employees, and top investors and clients include Airbus, BMW Group, Goldman Sachs, and Roche. So welcome, Matt, and thanks for joining me. Thanks a lot, Chris, to you and your colleagues over there. And um, uh, I really appreciate being on your show, and I, I think all of our company is uh, very excited about this. And it's I think we've picked a perfect time to have this conversation because QCWare is, as we'll get to later in our conversation, poised to embark on the biggest development in our company's history that we're super excited about. So thanks very much. No, very excited to have you on the show and looking forward to learning more about uh, the upcoming announcement. We'll share that later in the podcast. So Matt, I always like to start the podcast by asking my guests to share a bit about their own personal quantum journey. And my objective really is twofold. One, to give our audience a sense certainly of what you did before you started QCWare, but also to orient listeners to the fact that there are many ways and various paths that people have taken to get into the field of quantum information science. So could please share with our listeners a little bit about your background and your path so far, maybe where you grew up, where you went to school and what you studied, maybe some insight into your period in the service, um, perspective on companies or organizations where you worked, um, and how your interest in quantum began. I'm, I'm very happy to do that. I would say as a, a preamble, I think, uh, yes, you're asking a question about my background. I would say within QC where, uh, you know, our employees, our senior management, technical management, business management, these are the people that are actually have built the company. So I feel a little out of place talking about my background when we should be talking about theirs. Um, but sure, you've posed the question. So the very short answer is I grew up in Minnesota and uh, I always wanted to serve in the military and be an officer and I always wanted to fly. And that led me to go to the Air Force Academy. I was I graduated um, and served five years. I didn't get to fly, didn't get to go to pilot training because I, I failed the last eye test when I was in my final year at the, at the academy. But um I had some exhilarating experiences overseas in the military, and I, I love the teamwork and camaraderie. So I kind of took that with me. Um, I had spent 
a decent amount of my active duty time in Germany, and I am a, a fluent German speaker. And so when I decided to separate from the service, I thought, you know, how can I get back overseas and, and have a, a career over here that would be perhaps close to being as exciting as being a pilot would have been. And uh, to make a long story short, I, I went back to Wharton to get an MBA and uh, effectively uh, entered the finance field. I worked in structured finance, mergers and acquisitions, and then I, I uh, got into principal investing or private equity. And I ended up spending a total of 19 years in Europe. And at that point, my professional life ceased to exist. And um, I, uh, at that point, had after having done nothing but worked overseas all my life, I wanted to get back to the U.S. And when I came back, I started ruminating about what would be the most meaningful and fascinating thing to do as a next step. And I thought that combining my, my love of aerospace and defense technology with the experience I got in private equity of helping to build businesses and invest in businesses, I thought it would be beautiful to try to combine those two things. And that's kind of what took me out to, to travel around the country back in 2012 and 13, visiting a lot of government research laboratories. So DOE labs, um, uh, Department of so Department of Energy Labs, Department of Defense Labs, and NASA research centers, and so I was extremely lucky. You know, in your your question about how did the quantum journey begin, in January of 2013, I was very lucky to be introduced to a guy named Pete Warden, who was the center director at NASA's Ames Research Center in Mountain View, California. So right in the heart of Silicon Valley, and when I talked to Pete in January of 13. I was amazed at how generous he was with his time and his staff's time. And one of the people he connected me with when I explained that, hey, I want to get behind some emerging technologies. I want to put some elbow grease and, and a bit of capital into them. He introduced me at, at that point to a guy named Rupak Biswas, who was running advanced computing at Ames and, and still is. And um, when I listened to Rupak describe what quantum computing was, and what the potential for it would be, what the kind of notional use cases were, this caused kind of all the scales to fall from my eyes. And I, I had looked at 150 different technology ventures up until that point. But when Rupak started talking to me about quantum computing, I thought, okay, this is, this is super interesting. It sounds like it's going to be important, impactful. And importantly, back in 2013, there was no outside investment in Silicon Valley flowing into that domain. It was completely uninvested. And so I thought, okay, here's an opportunity for me to help to build a business, to build out that technology, and to do something that everyone else in Silicon Valley isn't currently doing. I mean, in the meantime, obviously, a lot of other groups have swarmed into the space. But uh, in answer to your question, that is how the journey began. There's a lot more to the company than that, that we can uh, that I want to talk about in terms of just corporate development and technology development, but that that's kind of how it started. Yeah. Well, so thank you for sharing your background. I think it's always valuable to have our listeners hear about, you know, my guests' uh, journey and how they, you know, what they've done before they are doing what they're doing now. So after meeting this gentleman at Ames, uh, was there an aha moment around like putting together a quantum computing company, like? deciding, you know, to go after 
you know, building a structure, getting resources, getting funding, um, putting together a go-to-market strategy, like where to, you know, where's the opportunity? Yes. It's fascinating it, that you saw that people weren't investing in it back then. It, it happened, it happened very much piecemeal. The two people that I met who were instrumental in shaping exactly what you just described uh, was a person named Randy Carell, who was also a former Air Force officer and was at that time working inside of NASA's quantum computing group in Mountain View, California at Ames. And another guy named, named KJ Sham, who um, had a, an MIT trained engineer um, who had a background in high-speed uh, chip design and a background in, in business operations. And, uh, and both of those people, along with me, uh, got together in 2013, 2014. And we kind of actually, it, it was those two that really shaped the business model. And uh, that's the time when we addressed these threshold questions that we needed to address. For instance, in quantum computing, there's this whole technology stack. There's hardware, middleware, application software. One of, one of the first questions, of course, is what part of that technology stack do we want to play in? When we set up a company, uh, you know, what uh, what layer do we want to be at? And, and this is this is a business question as much as a uh, a technology question. And so we thought through that and decided that. On a risk-adjusted basis, the smartest thing to do would be uh, to be at the application layer. It's it's not as capital-intensive. It's not as risky, um, and and frankly, it's where a lot of the value is created and extracted in technology. So you know the the application software layer, generally speaking. Yeah. And so when we thought about that, we thought about all right, what what domains? When you think about high-performance computing, because that's what quantum computing is. What domains seem to consume the most HPC resources today? And we thought about domains like uh, uh, chemistry simulation. So for material design or drug discovery, we thought about quantitative finance, so pricing and hedging. Uh, we thought about engineering, so engineering design. We thought about all those areas and said, yeah, let's, let's concentrate, although that still suggests not an over, overly... Uh, precise focus, we thought, well, that's that's what we want to do. And then that led us to thinking about, well, okay, if we want to build application software, what's really the core expertise that you need to have in the quantum computing domain? And, and that is actually algorithms. It's quantum algorithms. The algorithm is this, you know, set of complex mathematical formula that really, um, it's, it's where you express mathematically the problem that you're trying to solve on hardware. And it's really the algorithm that directs traffic on quantum computing hardware. And so we realized that the core part of our team would need to be people who had experience either inventing or extending quantum algorithms. Everything else around that, uh, software engineering, sales and marketing, um, all of, all of those other areas are really, certainly for the initial years of our company, were extremely peripheral. For us, the technology development and the algorithm development and use case development, that for us has always been at the center of the company. And, and really, since the beginning, our focus has been, let's be the first company that has figured out a way to run real-world use cases, so really 
compute bottlenecks that exist today for enterprises, let's be the first company that figures out how to resolve one or more of those bottlenecks using quantum processing. As you know, you, the dates you're citing are early in in the sort of quantum conversation, right? You've been, needless to say, you've been doing this a long time. Yeah. Um, what if you could share with our listeners, you know, the biggest challenge maybe you face as a founder, as you mentioned, you know, no one was funding this nation technology back then. Um, and the idea maybe you know, giving some advice to aspiring entrepreneurs, because there are a lot of companies that are jumping into this space looking to um, take advantage of the this exciting opportunity. And even with other tech, right? I mean, we're seeing lots of innovative tech continuing to emerge, ChatGPT and the like. All right. Well, I, there's, there's a couple of things that come to mind when you ask that question. The first one is very personal, but I have a feeling it's something that is experienced by almost every founder. And that is uh, there's a lot of psychological pain that you will go through Um in particular early on in the company, when there are a lot of forces acting on your fledgling, fragile venture that you have absolutely no control over. And in most cases, those forces acting on you are negative forces, they're challenges, they're being told no, uh, they're being, you're being denied things, uh, you're unable to convince people of things. And I think for a lot of individuals, who start companies, they probably come from a background of having succeeded at everything they'd done and had having had a lot of things come easy to them, which in a way, as a consequence of that, they have the confidence to set up a company. But I think any, by definition, any startup is doing something that is brand new or any startup worth its salt. And therefore, you're going to have to convince a lot of people who haven't seen your tech before or your product before that it's useful and you will encounter a lot of resistance and dealing with that resistance is, is a real challenge. It's a very lonely thing. And I would say it was probably the hardest thing that I did professionally in in my life, frankly. Um, So that's something that's honest. I think unless you're, you know, Evan Spiegel or Mark Zuckerberg and you, you have sort of a, a business that just takes off and just flies off the rails immediately because it's, it's, it's just adopted so quickly, unless you're fortunate to have built something or invented something that it just takes off virally. I think for the rest of us, you're going to have to be confronted with just needing to execute and build up incrementally and, and just not quitting, just persevering. That's one thing. Another area is in quantum computing, it's a brand new space. And so one of the, one of the most difficult but important essential challenges to conquer is pulling together people from a lot of different disciplines, people that would never have been in the same room if it were not for quantum computing. So that would be people that understand quantum mechanics and linear algebra, people that understand software engineering, people that understand classical high-performance computing, that, that industry people that understand quantitative finance or that understand drug discovery, pulling all of those people together in a room that heretofore had never met each other. This is an important but vital thing to do. And then sort of on top of all of that, what a lot of people forget in emerging technologies, I think, is that you absolutely have to have a product market fit. You know, your business has to make sense. So many people will start an emerging tech company based on a technology they had individually incubated at some point. And, and some fraction of those people will tend to be more focused on just developing the technology 
and not very focused on, well, what is it going to be good for? Because after all, if you're looking to have your, your, your business operating in the private sector, you've got it, the business has to make sense. The product has to be useful. Right. And so yeah. I think that's particularly the heart in quantum. Yeah. Those are great insights. Thank you for sharing that. I think our listeners will definitely benefit from hearing that perspective. Yeah. The, and the personal aspect, yeah, that, that you're going to encounter challenges. People will not believe uh, that what you're doing is valuable. And then take away, you know, what's the, what's the business case? Are you solving a problem, right, in the market that hadn't been solved before or haven't been solved as well? I want to learn more about QCWare's portfolio. So as I was saying in my opening remarks, you know, you, the company provides software and services to enable customers to take advantage of quantum computing capabilities. Can you describe for our listeners in a little more detail, you know, what the portfolio consists of? Certainly. In, in essence, we are an application software company and we are, the software that we're building currently runs on high performance classical computing chips. For instance, NVIDIA GPUs. All of the software and algorithms that we're developing will also allow our, those use cases to be run on quantum chips as they mature and as their power it starts to outperform what is available classically. And so if you think about it, we have at our core, we're a software company, but we do a lot of services around that. And so if you look at our business base today, we, we have software offerings, and we'll talk about those in a minute, and we have services offerings. On the quantum computing side, the services that we offer are heavily technical. They are working with large Fortune 100 companies to explore which of their use cases that are currently very time-consuming uh, workflows, time-consuming jobs, which of those can be sped up. And what we do is build quantum algorithms and code base to allow those use cases to be run. The, the gotcha with that part of our, of our business is that we are helping these companies get ready so that they kind of just have to flip a switch when quantum hardware matures. But at the same time, that is very services intensive. That's a kind of a future oriented part of our business. It's growing extremely fast. And we've got, uh, you know, we've signed over, over 50 customer contracts to date and booked over $10 million in revenue. So, so we are really, I think, in terms of commercial reach, we are probably uh, the largest or the most fortunate quantum computing startup in terms of uh, our revenue base and our customer base. On the software side in particular, we're launching our first classically powered product, which will is a bridge uh, that uh, a bridge into quantum computing, uh, and I'll, I'll talk about that in just a little bit. But uh, just to give you a little bit of color, when you talked about you know what's the scope of your business, your portfolio, some of the customers that we can name, uh, I think you've kind of mentioned them: uh, Roche, Goldman Sachs, uh, Total Energies, uh, BMW, Airbus. Uh, the list goes on. But but uh, in general, what you can see from our customer and investor base is a concentration in in two industry verticals. One again. Are, are companies that use chemistry in some way to build new molecules for drugs or new molecules for materials 
or for fuel additives or for pesticides. So that's all chemistry simulation. On the other side, it's it's quantitative finance. It's groups that that uh, trade complex derivatives and therefore need to price them. It's groups like large investment banks or hedge funds that have very large trading books um, that have positions that need to be hedged. So there's hedging calculations. It's uh, just about every heavy-duty financial institution that that uses models and needs to calibrate those models. So those are kind of uh, th- those are sort of the hard problems in 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 the quantitative finance space. So that's you know, Chris, roughly that's that's an overview of the company. Yeah. So all quantum companies today, right, are attempting to bridge the gap as you described, so between what's available now and what will be available tomorrow. Sounds like you're uniquely positioned to take advantage of um, what's coming. Uh, and I think your company has just launched a product recently. I'd like very much to have you uh, describe it for our listeners. Sure. The, this product is called Prometheum. And Prometheum is available as of April 18th on the AWS marketplace. Prometheum is a chemistry simulation package which allows pharmaceuticals companies, materials companies, crop sciences companies, the like, it allows them to model extremely large molecules and to do this extremely rapidly. So in terms of, and and this is key, when you think about a drug discovery pipeline or a materials design endeavor, these tend to be multi-year and multiple hundreds of millions of dollars of effort that's put into this. One of the big bottlenecks, one of the big constraints in those processes for drugs and materials is, is the inability to model the, the molecules which serve as the building blocks for those new compounds. And, uh, and what that means is there has been a lack of powerful algorithms and a lack of powerful hardware that allows these groups to model more or less full-size versions of the molecules that will be fed into these end products ultimately. And Prometheum is solving that problem. So we'll be able to, we are able to, with Prometheum, allow users to model molecules that are 10 to 20 times larger than anything they'd been able to model using commercial or open source software that's out there doing that same function. And we're able to solve all of these or resolve these problems in 10 to 50x less time. And we're doing that, of course, um, in two ways. One, we're leveraging all of our understanding of quantum mechanics and quantum algorithms and from our quantum computing background and bringing that to bear in this classical realm And we're also availing ourselves of the absolutely most powerful classical hardware out there. And those are the latest generations, latest generation GPUs uh, that are fielded by NVIDIA. So together, this combination of extremely powerful algorithms that are quantum inspired and extremely powerful hardware that allows you really to effectively parallelize the problem solution. That's what's giving all of the power to this package. Yeah, no, very exciting. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I want to drill down into it a little more deeply, get your sense of maybe more specifically where you see this capability providing the most benefit. You mentioned a couple examples, but maybe more detail about, say, pharma or materials science. Sure. If we, if we did start with, with pharmaceuticals, 
Um, so one of the, uh, if, if you think about the average life cycle of uh, inventing a new drug and getting FDA approval, to date, the average life cycle is somewhere around 12 to 14 years. And the average, the average investment to go through trials and, and wet lab and before that, all the, all the drug discovery phase. Yeah. Um, so you're talking about 12 to 14 years and about a billion and a half dollars. Yeah. And it turns out that about a third of that cost and about a third of that time is spent before you even synthesize this drug or, or have a chance to start putting it through trials. So there's this very large amount of time and large amount of money that is spent in that time where you're reviewing candidate molecules to try to evaluate which ones of those have properties, key properties that are most amenable and have a higher, a higher degree of likelihood to eventually make it through all of these trials. So just as in the case of, you know, back in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, if you had a new airfoil that you were going to put on an airplane, you'd roll that out a scale model of that to a wind tunnel and you'd check the aerodynamics. You check the lift and drag characteristics of that wing. Once we developed high, high performance computing and, and computational fluid dynamics analytics, we were able to do a lot of that wind tunnel testing virtually. In the same way with Prometheum, we're able to do a much larger chunk of that candidate molecule evaluation virtually. So not needing to actually synthesize or create these molecules and observe their characteristics, but be able with very, very high accuracy to do that um, in software. That, yeah, that is one example. Very so, exciting. What about, say, materials science? You'd mentioned that before as a possible place yes, where this could be applied. This is, this is very interesting. And this is really where we're putting a ton of energy into breaking new ground. So the pharmaceuticals industry has historically availed itself of various tools, various computational tools to try to uh, gain insights. The material side and crop science and uh, uh, petroleum products, they've done historically much less of that because there haven't been the types of tools that would allow them to do the modeling they need to do. Fortunately, Prometheum, as an ab initio-based uh, technology, is able to do the same thing for pharma, to for for materials and crop science, and uh, and that includes things like battery materials and solar cells, and uh, and carbon capture materials. All of these things that heretofore um, didn't have these kinds of, uh, you know, a kind of a powerful software tool, we're going to be able to help all of these companies use, th use this tool for that. That's what we're really excited about. So for us, there's this extant market, you know, uh, selling commercial software into pharma companies, that market exists. But what really hasn't been developed to any extent that we're going to create effectively is providing that same capability to all of these materials companies and uh, and and fuels companies and, and crop science companies. So that we're really really excited about that. That's very exciting. So the segue is where can customers get access to this product or find out more about it? Any customer out there can get a free trial, and it's available directly 
uh, from this website. It's getprometheum.com. And Chris, I think you'll probably post that website uh, as an attachment to uh, to the podcast when it goes out. Yep, but it's getprometheum.com. But in addition to that, and it's this is why I said, Chris, it's very timely that you're speaking to us now. We're holding a virtual launch event. It will be on April 25th. And this is going to give people the opportunity to learn more about the product and to see it in action. And uh, they'll also be able to register for that event at surprise, surprise. It's all they have to do is go on to getprometheum.com and and uh, that is where they'll be able to register. Great. Well, encourage listeners to, to check it out for sure and sign up for the virtual launch event again, April 25th at getprometheum.com. I want to shift gears just for a moment and talk about clients. It's the perennial question. I always describe this as the $64,000 question, but then I'm dating myself because I've had guests who don't remember that was a TV show in the 50s. Um, but I wonder if you could share some examples of ways that companies are using your solutions, your portfolio today. Maybe any favorites you want to talk about? There, there are a couple that come to mind, and, and I, I want to put a spotlight on, we've talked a lot about chemistry simulation and about those use cases. But I want to put a spotlight on the other part of our business, Keep, keeping in mind what we did very consciously as a quantum computing company is focused all of our attention on the domains where we expect quantum processing to get initial traction. And certainly the first thing we think will happen will be chemistry simulation. The other part is quantum machine learning and uh and and quantum monte carlo so so a couple of use cases and customers i'd like to note with roche for instance the swiss pharma company um, we developed a very interesting quantum machine learning use case it's medical image recognition to identify diseases in retinas use, using quantum algorithms so again this is something that we continue to evolve and develop in partnership with with customers like roche so that as soon as one of the 50-odd quantum computing hardware vendors produces a, a commercially useful chip, we'll be able to start running this use case on those machines. Uh, another one is Goldman Sachs, uh, an investor and, and longtime customers of ours. One of their hardest problems, I alluded to this earlier, is pricing complex equity derivatives. This is something that is extremely time consuming. And if that time to price can be shortened, there's an advantage to market participants that have that information and that pricing information more quickly. So it's really working on stochastic processes and de derivatives pricing, doing a, a quantum computing version of Monte Carlo simulation. And then finally, we mentioned BMW previously. We've developed for them a custom algorithm that uh, is would will will be applied to autonomous vehicle control, and the objective function that is being solved is to decrease the actual miles that are driven. So, without going into detail, those are a couple of examples that we're very Great. proud of. No, thank you for sharing. I want to get your take based on where you sit. You know, at the top of a seminal quantum company. Um, you know, what what's gotten your attention? Are there exciting trends and developments in the quantum computing industry that, um, or maybe unexpected applications that you've come across that you want to share? Yeah, well, I'm not a, a public intellectual necessarily. I'm just a practitioner in the field, but here's some, some positive things that are happening. First of all, I think there is a lot more information in 
the quantum computing industry today about which use cases are viable and where the true engineering bottlenecks are in fielding quantum computers. So this is this is a very welcome change. It's in some ways sobering, but I think there's a lot more information out there now, which helps make companies like ours to make better decisions and allows investors to make better decisions as well. What, what, so specifically, though, what I'm seeing is that I, I would say quantum computing hardware development is going what I would say mainstream. These the engineering efforts that are happening at these quantum computing hardware groups, they're resembling now groups that I would call or processes that I would call more mature engineering groups. So it's starting to look a lot less like university labs and looking a lot more like what you might see at Intel or NVIDIA in terms of uh, chip and processor design. So this is very this is a very good sign and it bodes well for the future of of the industry. In addition, there's really been some really encouraging developments on the error correction side. So one of the reasons quantum computers aren't out in the field yet is that uh, they are noisy. In other words, they are error prone. And error correction is something that consumes a lot of resources on a quantum chip. And these new error correction schemes that are being developed and techniques are minimizing the the so-called overhead on a chip or the number of physical qubits that need to be used to do error correction so that you can execute problems and have highly reliable gates. So this is very encouraging, this, this development in error correction. Most important for our company, of course, is the efforts being made by companies to come up with a couple of hundred of very high quality qubits. And that, that kind of size factor is really important to us. If we at QCWare, we, we can already specify exactly what a chip needs to look like in order for it to outperform the NVIDIA hardware that we're currently using. In other words, in order for us to slot quantum processing into a workflow on NVIDIA hardware, we kind of know exactly what that power boost, what, what that quantum chip would need to look like in order to provide that boost. And so, so for us, that just roughly speaking, it's we need we need roughly 200 qubits that have an average two qubit gate fidelity of about 99.99%. And as soon as one or more of those quantum computing hardware vendors can produce that, we can use it. And so as the dust kind of settles and we see what is being developed, we're really encouraged by the progress being made for these so-called NISC or non-error corrected machines. Right. Well, thank you for sharing that perspective. Matt, I want to turn to a topic that's near and dear to my heart, which is around workforce and talent, right? Uh, I wanted to get your take on the challenges facing a company like QCWare and finding talent. You mentioned earlier on that um, the company you know, had many scientists or sort of more focused on science talent, if you will, in the early days. But obviously, in building a business, you need ancillary and adjacent skills and wondering you know, do you have affiliations with universities maybe or, and or are there specific roles in disciplines that are harder to fill than others? Sure. And I, I do think it's important to think about this question for a bit or to address it because it is really critical. I think for any company, particularly for a startup, the quality of the leadership team, the, the technical team and the business team, the quality of that is the thing that will determine whether the company succeeds or doesn't succeed. 
it, it really is. It's about how well they can execute together. So I would say what has happened to us is that if you consider all of the functional areas of QCware, sort of technology and R&D, engineering, sales and marketing, operations and finance, if you look at all of those areas, each time we embarked on putting substance together around one of those areas, it was extremely difficult. And, and the reason is that we are in, you know, when we set out, it's, we've been a completely unknown quantity. I think that the luckiest thing we were able to do early on um, in terms of recruiting really top technical talent, I asked one of our Stanford postdocs, a guy named Peter McMahon, who at that time was kind of in a holding pattern. He had done his PhD at Stanford in in quantum information, quantum computing. And he, he did four years of postdoc at Stanford waiting for a faculty position to open up. And during that time, he had a 50% appointment with QCWare. So one of the random things I asked him to do was to write up a list of the top 25 or 30 quantum algorithms people in the world. And he did that for me. And I contacted all of them. And I was, and I was looking for people that at once were at the very top of their game but at the same time, we're frustrated or felt a little stymied in academia. And also, we're willing to take a risk in exchange for having complete autonomy. And so, so really, I think what, what was important to us early on was my recognition that what we wanted to do was bring in the very top people and let them figure out how to solve these very hard problems, how to, how to, how to develop quantum algorithms that are error-mitigating. Or, or that 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 function in the face of of, uh, of noise, and um, and how to how to extend or invent algorithms that allow real world use cases to be run on quantum hardware. These sorts of open questions are things that really powerful minds. Some of those minds really want to seize on. So that that enabled us to to bed down the leadership on the technical side. These people like Rob Parrish or Donis Karanidis uh, and and others. And, and what they did then was start to recruit people that they had known from their academic past. So a lot of the recruiting and fleshing out those teams has come from the exceptional recruiting that they have done. Um, and then likewise, in, in software engineering, we, we spent almost a year before we found an acceptable first initial software engineer, uh, an entire year. And that's because at the time we were recruiting, everyone was hiring like wildfire and very few exceptional quantum, or very few software engineers wanted to take a leap into a startup that was doing something that was perceived at the time as fairly esoteric. So it's just been very, um, with, with every new department that we set up, we're always encountering this uh, skepticism and resistance from from superb people as to you, why should I take this challenge? And eventually what it what it's meant is, you know, most of my job is spent recruiting and you do find if you put enough elbow grease into it, you will find a few exceptional people who actually naturally gravitate to precisely the challenge that we've, um, that we're looking to conquer. And so in a nutshell, that's kind of how the recruiting has been. It's been partially brute force. It's been partially relationship driven. Um, and, and frankly, we, we continue to be extremely lean. So we are not a volume hire. We're not like, like a big tech company that hires by the bushel. We hire, we hire one by one. 
And as our reputation grows, as people have come to view us as being a true technical and business leader in this nascent space, it's obviously made our recruiting uh, a lot easier. And, and I've gone from having um, real anxiety, you know, if I look back in, in past, you know, kind of in the first couple of years of our company, to being very relaxed about it. That's a great story, finding the top 25 algorithm designers and reaching out to them. Yeah. And then encouraging the talented staff to recruit their colleagues. Yeah, great. It, it all felt very natural on the, that side. You did ask about university affiliations. Yeah. Um, we have in Palo Alto, so you short walk from to Stanford. And uh, we have, uh, so at Stanford, uh, there's kind of the first quantum algorithms or quantum computing assistant professors over there, a guy named Adam Boland. Adam had been working with us for three or four years as well while he was doing his postdoc at Berkeley. And I can remember going up to see Adam for the first time in uh, kind of 2016 or 17 and having coffee with them up at a coffee shop on campus at Berkeley and, and chatting with them and, and really you know, really respect, you know, having immediate respect. So he's been with us since then um, on, a, on a one day a week basis. So he provides a, a wonderful bridge into uh, academia on that side. And then Peter McMahon, someone who I mentioned a little earlier, Peter is now an assistant professor at Cornell, and he's also with us one day a week. So those are our two kind of formal linkages into universities, but obviously we've got a lot of additional linkages into uh, government labs and uh, and other universities. Yeah, great. Thank you for sharing that. So we've come to the end. I want to close by asking you to look into your crystal ball or wax philosophic and g give our listeners your take on not only the role you might see QCware playing in the future of quantum computing, but you know more broadly how quantum might impact how we live and work maybe in the next three to five to ten years. Let's start with the with the second half of your question first, um, and let's work outwards in time. So I think over the next three to five years, and perhaps the next three to seven years, what we will see in with quantum computing is uh, a new hardware technology that will be able to give some performance boost to initially a very narrow set of use cases. And we've discussed on this call what some of those use cases are likely to be. So I think it will be equivalent in a way to, this is something I was talking to Rob Parrish about yesterday. If you look at an NVIDIA chip, um, an A100, for instance, you can buy one version that has, uh, I think, 40 gigs of uh, RAM and another that has 80 gigs. And you as a user if you swap out one for another, you'll, you'll see more power. You'll be able to instantiate larger problems. And I think that's going to be at a very initially, that's the kind of wow factor that you'll see from quantum. I don't think it will be like flipping a switch and all of a sudden a ton of new use cases will be revealed and massive speedups will happen. Of course, it's not going to work that way. This will be an incremental set of improvements. Now, so again, what I think will happen is that for existing use cases, quantum processing will be providing power boost, which is what we want. Now, if you go further out, you, you need to, like definitionally, you need to speculate a bit. And so when you do go further out though, perhaps the most intriguing thing that could be, you know, truly new use cases 
would be. Now, this is a very overused term, but there's so much effort being applied to classical machine learning and classical artificial intelligence. I think the most interesting possible employments of quantum processing will be in that field. And I think the reason it's intriguing, although very speculative, is that when you look at some of the tasks that are performed in machine learning, you can see that that task, if you were mapping that onto a quantum processor, you would have a huge efficiency gain. And by efficiency gain, what I mean is, if you count the number of steps or gate operations that it takes to solve some machine learning problems, you can, on, on classical hardware, you can estimate how many steps it would take to solve that same problem on quantum hardware, and you can have a quadratic or potentially an exponential speed up or, or exponentially fewer steps or quadratically fewer steps required. And that speed advantage is something that I think could unlock some very, very interesting uh, employments in artificial intelligence. I think it's too speculative really to talk in any more detail about that, but what intrigues me and what motivates me is looking ahead for that. I think in the meantime, though, I think on the chemistry simulation side in particular, I do really think that these tools, including Prometheum that we're launching, will perhaps be the first or one of the very first things that will allow more drugs to be rapidly fielded to address a wider set of diseases. I think it could lead to much more, uh, potentially more, uh, more effective battery materials. I think it could lead uh, to, to, to quicker fielding of better pesticides, um, better performance materials. So I, I do think that all of that stuff will happen. And I really resist I don't want to turn this into a hype thing, but I'm what I'm giving you is some vision that intrigues me. So what gets me out of bed every morning is thinking about really making a dent in those areas. Matt, we've come to the end of our session. I want to thank you so much for uh, joining me. I want to invite people to follow you and the company on LinkedIn. I'm going to point listeners to the website QCWare and GetPromethium.com. Join the April 25th uh, demo session. Uh, I noticed you're also on Twitter at QCWare, so encourage listeners to uh, follow you there. And thanks again. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks a lot, Chris, to you and everyone else on your staff. And uh, we look forward to seeing you at uh, the next Q2B conference. So have a great day, and thank you very, very much for your time. Thanks again, Matt, for joining me today, and thanks to all of you for listening. I want to encourage you to uh, share our conversation on social media to encourage the impact of my conversation with Matt. Please listen to my other podcast episodes if you haven't already, and feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. This has been a production of Inside Quantum Technology. You've been listening to the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology. For more information on this episode or other topics relating to quantum technology, visit InsideQuantumTechnology.com. Dot com.